Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. NAFTA renegotiations with Mexico and Canada. How are those two countries dealing with demands from the United States? Here to tell us more is Gary Clyde Huffbauer, non-resident senior fellow for the Peterson Institute for International Economics, joining us from Washington. Gary Huffbauer, what exactly are the sticking points between the United States and Canada? Uh, There are three. First of all, the United States, uh, President Trump, wants Canada to uh, dramatically increase access for U.S. dairy farmers. And Canada has a rather protected so-called supply management system. Secondly, uh, President Trump wants to get rid of uh, an arbitration system for handling uh, or for reviewing anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases. And that uh, Canadians have described that as a red line. And thirdly, uh, the agreement with Mexico provides for a review in six years and possible termination in 16 years. And the Canadians uh, strongly prefer an indefinite life of the new agreement. So those are the three big sticking points. Gary, uh, as a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, uh, you often uh, Peterson Institute is, is often thought of as putting forward a pro-trade, pro-free trade type of agenda. And I'm curious on your perspective uh, coming from that, given your experience as a deputy assistant secretary for international trade and investment policy at the U.S. Treasury in the 1970s. Uh, I'm just wondering Is there a corollary to the time that we're living in in terms of the anti-free trade sentiment uh, in your in your experience? Oh, oh, yes, this is a very strong anti-free trade mood after about 60 years of progressive uh, freer trade, both by the United States and other countries. But this particular agreement is really a backward step and a big backward step in terms of of freer trade in three important sectors, autos, firstly, um, textiles, to some extent, and then steel and aluminum, because a side agreement here will put quotas on imports of steel and aluminum from Mexico and possibly from Canada as well. So those are those are steps backwards. Gary, do you believe that technology and innovation will, and I, I guess it is a pun, trump the, the 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 sort of uh, conflict that you just described having to do with free trade that the fact that you can move money as well as material all around the world with a click of a button is that going to make it much more difficult to kind of enforce trade restrictions it it does it does and you uh, can also add the digital uh, revolution that we're in which uh, is really a, a big pathway to freer trade but the Trump administration is doing its best to plug, you know, loopholes that might be created by technology. And in the auto industry, they've uh, they've really put all out to uh, 
to restrict them. We haven't seen the end of it because uh, after this agreement is reached, they will try to reach agreements with uh, Europe and Japan restricting uh, U.S. auto imports from those uh, two areas as well. So, you know, you're right. Technology is liberalizing, and then the uh, uh, the administration is trying to catch up with some more thumbs in the in the dike. Gary, do you think that this wave of protectionism and anti-free trade sentiment stems from a failure in free trade to uh, accomplish certain things that people were hoping for? Uh, well, that's what they say, but that's not, in fact, what's happening. What's happening, going back to the technology point, is that technology is is replacing labor in a lot of different sectors, uh, a lot of different labor activities, not only blue-collar, but but white collar as well, and uh, that's having an effect on average wage growth. Politicians need something to blame that on, so hey, blame it on the foreigner. That's the simple politics. Um, so it's not free trade; it's uh, technology, which is with its uh, you know rough spots, which is causing I think most of this angst. Speak, if you can, about the U.S.-Mexico agreement as you know it. What are some of the good and what are some of the bad points? The good points are lifted from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which, um, as you know, President Trump rejected right uh, on his first day in office. So digital trade, actually, they are very pro-liberalization of digital trade, and that's important for the United States, which is a digital superpower, intellectual property protections, uh, and there are some good features there, certainly from the standpoint of U.S. companies, biologic data gets protected for 10 years, uh, copyrights for life of creator plus 75 years, and a lot of strong stuff on enforcement. There will be a, a chapter on state-owned enterprises. That's That's a modest issue with Mexico. Obviously, it's a big issue with China, and this chapter is meant to be a template. There'll be something on currency. Again, more template for uh, China talks going forward than for Mexico today. So those are all, you know, those are all good things. And uh, the administration needs to be congratulated for modernizing in those respects. Gary, you were quoted in a recent article in Axios saying that if Trump, uh, President Trump imposes fresh tariffs and $200 billion in Chinese goods, uh, that will trigger a trade war with huge financial repercussions because China will not back down. One key question as we look at markets, how long will it take for those financial repercussions, uh, how long will it take for those to be felt in the United States once this trade war gets going? Oh, it, the finance markets move ahead of the real markets, and they, it will happen, I think, very quickly. And China is not Mexico. I mean, Mexico is is in a very difficult situation. It's a weak country compared to the United States. China is not going to back down. China is going to go tit for tat. So if, if uh, Trump does $200 billion, 25%, they'll do $200 billion, 25%. If he goes another $200 billion, they'll start restricting U.S. companies doing business in China, Caterpillar, uh, Boeing, you name it, they'll restrict them. So I, I think the financial repercussions from that will happen within, uh, you know, within a week or two, or even quicker, maybe in a few days. And and it's because of those financial repercussions that I remain skeptical, even though Trump keeps saying he's going to go after the Chinese, that he will do it 
prior to the November election. I just can't see this as being good politics for the Republicans come November. Gary, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks a lot. Take care. Take care. Gary Clyde Huffbauer is non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. He has a pretty deep knowledge of all things having to do with trade. I mean, I just want to give you some sense of of what this background is. He was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Trade and Investment Policy at the U.S. Treasury and Director of the International Tax Staff at the U.S. Treasury during the 1970s. Talking of Ford, its credit rating was lowered yesterday by Moody's Investor Service. And I want to bring in Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW Group. Tad, you're the perfect person to have on, given the fact that Ford was just downgraded one notch above the junk rating, uh, the highest junk rating, and Ford has a ton of debt. Is this a buying opportunity for you since prices on the debt uh, are falling, uh, are falling, or is it a selling uh, a sort of need to sell kind of moment? Well, in our view, uh, the uh, the market, I think, is beginning to maybe more properly price the risk associated with Ford. As you point out, they have a lot of debt. I believe Ford, the company, has about $90 billion in long-term debt. And as you also pointed out, Moody's dropped the rating to the lowest level of investment grade, the BAA3. And they also indicated a negative outlook, which means that officially, or according to the usual way people look at these things, Ford is a prospective fallen angel. It makes any additional missteps. It runs the risk of being junked in terms of its rating by by Moody's. There's about 120 basis points um, of spread currently in that Ford trades wider to General Motors. Uh, given our inclination and our our belief about the relative merits of the two businesses, we would rather uh, express a view in the autos in the General Motors name rather than the Ford name. Hold on a second. Have you are you actively selling Ford in order to buy General Motors, or you just aren't buying any Ford and are adding General Motors? We actually have we we have repositioned ourselves to emphasize General Motors at the expense of Ford in the portfolios. We we haven't done it so much reactively. I think we we have held to the view that General Motors has made some more uh, difficult choices. It's made it uh, the tougher decisions, and as a result, it's in a better position vis-a-vis Ford. But of course, it should be pointed out that there tends to be a, a significant amount of correlation in the way General Motors and Ford trade with one another. That correlation has broken down recently with the widening out in the Ford spreads. And as I indicated, I think that that's that's a that is a fair market reaction. It is not, in our ju- in our view, a, a proper time to be adding Ford exposure, given its prospective risk uh, profile and the potentiality of it becoming a fallen angel. It would become a rather large fallen angel, by the way. Tad Ravel, speak about the sales by corporate holders of bonds. And I'm thinking of companies such as Apple and Oracle. They were big bond buyers. Now they seem to be big bond sellers. What happens when they sell? Well, we saw some of that happen in the first quarter of this year, as you quite rightly pointed out. The large cash piles that some of these uh, large tech franchises uh, held, uh, many of uh, which were being held in effect in overseas types of accounts, were um, 
were largely or significant amounts of them were liquidated in the first quarter of this year. So what had been a long accumulation process, mostly of short-term corporate debt, turned into a, uh, a buying opportunity actually in the first quarter of this year as those uh, positions uh, came into the marketplace. Uh, I don't think that we've seen much activity over the course of the last uh, couple of quarters, however. As I said, that was a really early 2018 type of event. But I think if we look at the more general question about uh, what is the direction, the next direction of the corporate bond market, in our view, it's a it's going to a bad place. That you're really? in a late cycle type of environment. Yeah, you're in a late cycle type of environment. There's a very high level of leverage that exists in the corporate bond market generally. There are other forms of market internals, if that's the word for it, that are probably bear watching, and they have been um, they have been. Uh, mentioned by a number of, of folk, but uh, Moody's, for instance, called out the 80% of issuance in the um, in the loan market that has now become covenant light. This is a, obviously a, a, a new phenomenon or a phenomenon that is representative only of this cycle, and it means that the types of bank loans that are widely syndicated and trading in the capital markets are particularly risky. The, um, well, hold on a second, uh, but, but, but leverage loans are different than uh, fixed income debt. And I'm just wondering, I mean, have you gotten rid of your leveraged loan exposure almost entirely? I mean, do you see the same risk in the high yield bond market? Well, um, right. So technically speaking, what you say is correct, that leveraged loans are not, strictly speaking, bonds. Um, however, they are an alternative form of financing that exists for uh, leveraged companies. So leveraged companies, generally speaking, have uh, a choice as to whether or not they prefer to access the high-yield bond market or the leveraged loan market. In that sense, they are actually uh, close uh, siblings of, of one another. Um, so uh, I guess what I would put forward is that many of the dynamics, as underwriting standards have softened, loosened in the leveraged loan market, something comparable has also occurred in the high-yield market. I the see. fact that credit is, is so accessible and on such poor terms from the point of view of a lender, in our opinion, is a very significant red flag in the context, as I mentioned a moment ago, of a late-cycle environment where leverage is already high and the potentiality for a, a growth recession or a generalized slowdown right. uh, definitionally is rising. Okay, so just 20 seconds. Are you buying emerging markets in the sell-off? Not yet. Uh, the uh, if you look at the uh, longer term spreads of the emerging market asset class, this, while the spreads are wider, it is uh, still based upon the historical spread level, still fairly tight. And um, I think the dynamics that we've seen over the course of the last several weeks should give one quite a bit of pause. In an environment of quantitative tightening, what is seems to be occurring is that the weaker borrowers are being revealed in the market. So what we've seen so far, of course, is Turkey, Argentina, right. and more recently, Indonesia. There may be others. Thanks very much for being with us. Tad Ravel is the Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income for TCW, helping to manage more than $180 billion. How satisfied are you with your job? Gad Levanon is the conference board's chief U.S. economist, and he's here to discuss their new survey just in time for Labor Day. It is called the Labor Day Survey. 51% of U.S. employees overall are satisfied with their job. Gad, thanks very much for coming into the studio. 
What are some of the big takeaways from this report? Well, I think the main takeaway is it's seven uh, years in a row that we're seeing an improvement in jobs in job satisfaction, and I think a lot of it is related to the improving labor market. Uh, we're seeing uh, improvement in satisfaction, especially in components related to the labor market, like job security and uh, and wages. Um, so as long as the labor market continues to improve, I think we'll see stronger job satisfaction. It's interesting to me that there's job satisfaction with wages when we look at the real wages uh, that haven't gone up at all in the past year. In fact, by some measures have gone down if you counter in uh, inflation. So can you square these two? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of uh, wage measures, and some of them tell different stories uh, from others. But I, I think it is true that overall wages are not accelerating as one would expect, given how tight the labor market. But if you look at wages for blue-collar versus white-collar workers, you do see an interesting gap there. So in, in blue-collar and low-paid services occupations, you see already a significant acceleration in wages. But in white-collar, the, the high income high-paying uh, professionals and management positions there, you don't see as much uh, wage growth yet. This is fascinating to me because a lot of people think of it as being the other way around, right? That ba the wealth gap between rich and poor has been widening and that, that you could see this with respect to what's been going on with those who can invest in stocks who, who can't. Um, but what you're saying is from a wage perspective, that is not the case. In the last two, three years, that's not the case. And I, I know it is contrary to uh, to what a lot of people um, know uh, and, and what was the case for many decades. But now there are so, several factors that are really tightening labor markets for blue-collar and low-paid services occupations. One of them is the fact that the U.S. Um, labor force is becoming more and more educated and fewer people are willing to take those blue-collar and uh, low-paying services jobs yet their share in employment is continuing to go up or continuing to remain the same. So fewer people are interested in those jobs, even though they are uh, growing rapidly. Uh, that's one thing. The second um, is the disability um, developments in the United States. There have been a huge increase in the share of people who are saying that they are not in the labor force because of disability. And almost all of them are concentrated in the the less educated population. So uh, people with no high school degree, but even with high school degree and some college, uh, it's almost no, none of that is happening in the population with a college degree. Gad, there are 23 survey components. Yeah. What did people say about their commute to and from their so, place of work? So, um, as, as a New Yorker, you'll probably be surprised that uh, this is one of the top uh, ranking elements. So most people are more satisfied with their commute than other parts of, of uh, their job. It's uh, probably not uh, people in the New York area, but in other parts of the country, people are pretty satisfied with their commute. How do you get to work? What? How do you get to work? I uh, um, walk mostly and take a, a one-stop subway or a tram from Roosevelt Island. So for me, I can't complain about my commute either. You see, he's see, one of those 23. Either, I would never complain. No. <laughs> well, I want to know about job disappointment. What's the greatest disappointment that people are expressing in the survey? People uh, don't like uh, their bonus. They don't like uh, um, a promotion policy because, you know, uh, I think part of it is that... Uh, 
more than 50% of people think that they are above average. So they uh, think they can uh, do better, but uh, you can only promote uh, so many people. Uh, so that's something that people are unhappy about. They're unhappy with their training opportunities, with the performance review process. Those are some of the things that people are unhappy about. When we talk about training programs, because there's been a lot of focus on that recently, how to retrain employees who might have outdated skills to make them more compatible with what's needed today. What types of training are we talking about? I mean, is it with computer software? Is it with uh, understanding the assembly of, of new components? I mean, what, what what training are we talking here? I mean, the question is just general training. Uh, but uh, I, I suspect... Uh, there aren't uh, good statistics about training, but uh, kind of common knowledge is that companies are over time spending less on training because they don't want to commit resources to workers who may live uh, in a year or two. So uh, that's, um, I think it's uh, across the board. Are there any spots that are less bright than what this seems, which is a unabashedly positive rosy <laughs> report? Well, I think uh, if you compare the results now to... Um, when we began doing the survey in the mid-80s, and uh, you see that it's a level difference. Uh, in the last decade or even more, job satisfaction is much lower than it used to be in the 80s, for example. And I think that uh, that's probably not, we're not going to go back to the 80s. I think that the kind of fundamental relationship between employees and employers uh, changed significantly during that time. Uh, for example, if in the past uh, you didn't, layoff people unless there was a crisis in the company. Now layoffs are part of the regular toolbox of, of uh, companies. Uh, so there is much less loyalty from the employer side and from the employee side. And uh, uh, that, I think, reduces job satisfaction. God love and Thank you so much for being with us. Chief Economist for North America for the Conference Board in New York. Pim, I am really interested in the idea that blue-collar workers are seeing much faster wage gains than white-collar workers. I feel like that is not something we hear a lot, and I feel like it is an important thing to recognize. Try finding an electrician or a plumber. Well, this is what it goes to. Very interesting. Well, yesterday, uh, Bloomberg got a chance to sit down with uh, President Donald Trump in the Oval Office, our own Margaret Tollef, Jennifer Jacobs, and John Micklethwaite, interviewing President Donald Trump. Here to tell us more about that and the president's Labor Day weekend, perhaps, is uh, Tolu Olorunipa. He is our Bloomberg White House correspondent. Tolu, what do you think the biggest takeaway from the interview was? Wow, that is a hard question. This was a great interview by my colleagues, Jennifer Jacobs, Margaret Talev, and our editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, and they covered so much ground in about an hour. It's hard to know what the biggest takeaway might be. I, I think his remarks on uh, the WTO, the president basically saying that if the WTO, the World Trade Organization, does not shape up that he would be willing to move the U.S. out of the WTO, if you were actually to follow up on that, that would be a pretty major bombshell in U.S. Uh, trade policy and U.S foreign policy. 
He also commented about Europe and the European Union, saying that the Europeans are just as bad as China on trade and that he is willing to potentially put car tariffs on the Europeans if they do not accede to his various requests. So uh, there was so much ground covered, but the trade comments were uh, were pretty remarkable, and uh, it shows that the president is moving full speed ahead in this trade war. Just to sort of give some context to that, auto stocks in Europe are down 1.5% today following those comments. Uh, there was a little bit of optimism yesterday sort of baked into these shares that perhaps there would be some kind of agreement between the U.S. and Europe after Europe offered to drop all tariffs if the U.S. did the same. Uh, President Trump rebuffing that in our interview. So uh, definitely moving markets this morning. One thing that I'm wondering is about the capital gains aspect of the interview. The, the idea that President Trump is entertaining allowing people to pay taxes on inflation adjustment adjusted returns for their equity portfolios. Basically, this would amount to what would most likely be a tax cut for the wealthier individuals in the country. What kind of traction is that getting today as you speak to other representatives and other people uh, around the White House? Yeah, it's still very much in a holding pattern as the research is done by the administration. They're looking at whether or not they can do this uh, unilaterally and not go through Congress. President Trump in the interview said that he is looking at this very strongly and he views it as a stimulus for the economy. So he talked about it in very positive terms, but he did say that he's going to wait. He's going to see if his administration can look into it and do some research and and report back to him about both whether he can do it unilaterally and secondly, whether it would be a good idea. Obviously, there's a budget crunch with uh, tax cuts that went into place last year. So this would reduce the amount of revenue coming into the U.S. Treasury. But it is another tax cut that he could offer to uh, his supporters and say, you know, I, I continued cutting taxes even without Congress after passing a major tax cut last year. So it's something that he's looking at. Uh, the uh, administration is looking at whether or not it can do this. Congress uh, hasn't really weighed in very much. They are in support of tax cuts generally, but generally they like them to be done through the legislative branch and not through the executive branch. And there could be some uh, a little bit of a, a battle over the, the power of the purse, which Congress believes that it has. This has never been done through regulation before. So there might be some consternation in Congress about if the president were to do this through executive order, it could be undone through regulations by the next president. Tolu, we're currently monitoring comments by Canada's foreign minister, Krista Freeland. She's speaking with reporters in Washington currently saying that Canada is looking for a good trade deal, not just any trade deal. Have you heard anything from any of your sources about the tone of those meetings, which are continuing? Yeah, it's very much touch and go. I mean, one hour you might hear that they're getting close to a deal. Uh, like the president said in the interview yesterday, he thinks they're close. And then the next hour you hear that uh, the negotiations are, have been very tense. We actually have heard that the negotiations uh, in the last 12 to 24 hours have been pretty tense. They're getting down to the nitty gritty and it really could go either way. The Canadians are not going to accept what they would say might be a bad deal, uh, even though the president believes that uh, that he he has all the cards and he has the upper hand in this negotiations. The Canadians are saying they're going to drive a hard bargain and they are not just going to walk away with any deal, even though the president believes that today is the deadline. They are going to continue negotiating as, as, as long as they can to get as many concessions as they can. Yeah. But there are some pretty, um, pretty hard sticking points that will be difficult for the U.S. and the Canadians to, to agree on in such a short period of time. 
and how they can spin it for their constituents, saying that they got the best deal possible. Tulu Olorunipa, thank you so much for being with us. Tulu Olorunipa is White House correspondent for Bloomberg News, which had an exclusive interview yesterday with President Trump, a wide-ranging interview. There are a number of stories on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. Check them out. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.